Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we're convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks at greenvilleoaks.org and connect with us on social media. We would love it if you could rate and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Wade Hodges. Hello, everyone. Speaking of joy, congratulations to all of our friends from Harding. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. That was great. You won the national championship, and appropriately, you did it in the most conservative way possible. Rushing for more yards than any other collegiate program ever. Congratulations. If you would please turn in your, somebody's like, what is he talking about? Okay, so mostly ACU crowd here. I get it. <laughs> turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. The mother was mortified when she learned that her 10-year-old daughter was regularly visiting the home of an older German man and asking him for help with her math homework. Not because the older man was dangerous or a threat, but because she didn't want her daughter bothering this famous man who fled the Nazis and moved into their neighborhood near Princeton University. Turns out, this older man helped a lot of kids in the neighborhood with their homework. He had a knack for breaking down and explaining complex equations in language and terms children could understand. And this neighbor turned math tutor was none other than Albert Einstein. And the image of Einstein, whose name is synonymous with genius, she's an Einstein, he's an Einstein, Moving into a neighborhood and helping a 10-year-old girl with her math homework primes our imagination for one of the most memorable and quotable phrases, not just from John's prologue, but in all the scriptures. So I love the way Eugene Peterson renders this phrase in the message. It's John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Other translations will say the word became flesh and made his dwelling or lived or walked among us. John opens his gospel, remember, the very first line with the phrase, in the beginning was the word. And that phrase, in the beginning, sends us back to the beginning of Genesis, which begins within the beginning and John does this because he wants us to see that the story he's telling us is a new creation story. God is doing, creating something new in Jesus. But then, in the last five verses of his prologue, which we'll read today, John sends us back not to Genesis, but to Exodus. Because he also wants us to see the story he's telling as a new Exodus story. 
Let's read these verses, and then I'll explain what that means. Let's pick it up. John chapter 1, verse 14, with that familiar phrase again. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. When John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, the word for dwelling in the original language is similar to the word tent or tabernacle. So it could also be translated, the word became flesh and put up his tent among us or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. And it's those phrases that send us back to Exodus. Now, we usually summarize the Exodus story as God delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And that's certainly a big part of the story. But if you go back and read through Exodus, you'll see that the deliverance from slavery happens in the first half of the book of Exodus. And it's in the second half of the book where God makes arrangements through the construction of a tabernacle, a sacred, movable tent, so that God can come and dwell with God's people as God is leading God's people through the wilderness. The culminating event of Exodus is not the tenth plague. It's not the parting of the Red Sea. It's not the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's all leading to what happens in the final chapter, in the last few verses of Exodus, when the presence of God fills the tabernacle with the glory of God. This is how it is described in Exodus 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on the next stage of their journey, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. When John says that we have seen the tabernacling glory of God, he's not talking about a cloud during the day or fire at night. 
He's talking about seeing the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, in that glory, we saw grace and truth. Jesus, filled with the glory of God, was full of grace and truth. And this phrase is a callback to Exodus. When God is giving Moses the law, God passes in front of Moses and allows Moses to see his glory from the backside. Moses cannot see God's glory full on from the front. He only gets a glimpse from the back. And then God gives Moses a description of God's character. And one of the phrases in that description is the Lord is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And more than a few scholars have wondered if maybe John didn't take that phrase out of Exodus, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and echo it when he says the glory of God revealed in Jesus is full of grace and truth. See, when John tells us the story of the word becoming flesh and tabernacling among us so that we see God's glory and it's full of grace and truth. He's not making up a new story. He's not creating something out of thin air. He's tapping into an idea, a concept, an image, an expectation, a hope, a story that goes all the way back to Exodus. One of God's chief aims in the Hebrew Scriptures is to come and dwell among God's people on earth. God's goal in the Scriptures is not to take God's people up to heaven. It's for God to come from heaven and dwell with God's people on earth. And the hope of God's people in the Hebrew scriptures is for their God to come and dwell with them on earth. And John says, this is exactly what has happened in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and tabernacled, and we have seen his glory. And it happens in such a way that the glory of God, only partially visible and available to the people of God in the tabernacle, later in the temple in Jerusalem, is now fully visible and available in Jesus. John says no one has ever seen God, and that is no one has ever seen the fullness of God's glory from the front. Even Moses, through whom God gave the law, saw it from God's backside and wasn't able to enter the tabernacle when the cloud descended. But Jesus shows us something even Moses, the lawgiver, never saw the fullness 
of God's glory. And John says this not to diminish Moses or the law, but to elevate Jesus as the unique Son of God, the one and only Son who embodies fully the vision of what God is really like. And the glorious God, Jesus embodies and reveals, John says, is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. John uses the word grace four times in those five verses. Grace and truth, grace upon grace, grace and truth, grace, 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 grace. And then curiously, the word grace never shows up again in the Gospel of John. One possible reason for this is that once the prologue is over and Jesus begins his ministry, Everything Jesus says and does in the Gospel of John embodies God's grace. John doesn't need to use the word grace. He just shows us Jesus. Grace in the flesh. The word truth does show up throughout the Gospel of John. Later on in John 14, Jesus will say, I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. Truth in the flesh. And then later when Pilate famously asked Jesus at his trial, what is truth? The answer comes not in the form of a philosophical or theological discourse, but in Jesus willingly laying down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to know what the word grace means, Don't look it up in a dictionary. Watch Jesus. If you want to know the truth about God, don't debate a philosopher. Watch Jesus. If you want to see the glory of God, don't look in a cloud. Watch Jesus. Jesus, as N.T. Wright likes to say, we don't take our preconceived images, notions, definitions of God, what we intuitively think God must be like, and then pour it into Jesus. We don't let the word God define Jesus. Instead, we watch and Listen to Jesus so that what we see Jesus saying and what we hear or see Jesus doing and hear him saying defines for us who God is and what God is really like. The word God does not define Jesus. Jesus defines the word God. So if you really want to know what God is like, watch Jesus. Because it's Jesus who is always clarifying, always correcting, always reshaping and reconfiguring our distorted, incomplete, and inaccurate images of God. In other words, when Christ moved into the neighborhood, he took the complicated 
mysterious, often confusing idea of God, more complex than any math problem, and fleshed it out so that we not only better understand God, so that we can not only know more about God, but also so that we can know God. And by the time Jesus is done, we also know how much God loves us. Several years ago, there was a large man who, suffering from mental illness, maybe also under the influence of drugs, became angry, agitated, and loud on a metro train in Vancouver, British Columbia. And all the other passengers on the train, understandably, were alarmed by his behavior, and they began to gradually move away from the man. All except for one 70-year-old woman who moved toward him and grabbed his hand. And this sweet gesture soothed the man, and he sat down on the train and began to weep. Another passenger took a picture of this scary but beautiful scene. And afterwards, the man who took the photo spoke to the woman. And she said, I'm a mother. And I could tell he just needed someone to touch him. And then she went on to confess that she was worried that he might stab her with the pin in his hand. But she decided to take the risk because she said it was more important that he know he was not alone. That he know he was not alone. When Christ moved into the neighborhood, when God came near to us in Christ, he showed us what God is really like. And it is better. God loves us more and is willing to take bigger risks for us than we could ever imagine on our own. May we draw peace and comfort and courage and strength from the grace of God, from the truth of God, from the glory of God revealed in the nail-scarred hand of Christ, reaching out to assure us that we are not making our way through this wilderness, making our way through this world alone. Our God has come to be among us. And the church said, amen. Go in peace. Have a great week. Thank you so much for listening to the message from the Greenville Oaks message broadcast. We hope this message enriched your life and can help you inspire others to follow Jesus because we honestly believe following him is the best way of life possible. 
Be sure to connect with us online on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.